welcome to the Trial Talk podcast. I'm Charlotte Hartley, a Science Communications Officer at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. In this show, we explore the clinical trial landscape by talking to the clinicians and researchers behind the work we do. If you're interested in learning how our research can help improve healthcare in the UK and around the world, this is the podcast for you. We're back this year with a new series for 2024. It's also a very special year for the MRC Clinical Trials Unit as we're celebrating our 25th anniversary. That's 25 years of smarter studies, global impact and better health. For this episode, I'm handing over the microphone to my colleagues, Hanif Esmail and Connor Tweed, both infectious diseases researchers at the MRCCTU at UCL. They'll be interviewing Andrew Nunn and Sarah Meredith, who have both recently retired from the unit. We'll hear all about their accomplished careers in TB research, reflections on the past, and hopes for the future. Um, My name's Hanny Fismile, and I'm here with my, uh, my colleague, Connor Tweed. We're both members of the TB group at the MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL. And we're delighted to take over this podcast today and we're going to interview Andrew Nunn and Sarah Meredith who recently retired uh, from the TB unit at the MRC CTO at UCL, uh, having spent a combined total of 92 years working uh, in the field of TB. So we're gonna ask them about their experiences of um, working at the unit and UCL and their uh, thoughts on tuberculosis. So. Uh, just to kick things off, I'm going to ask each of you in turn just to tell us a little bit about how your career in tuberculosis and tuberculosis trials started and who your early mentors um, in the field were. So maybe to you first, Andrew, and then Sarah. Yes, well, I got into the field of TB really through a, an uh, encounter with the careers uh, office at the University of Sussex, and I had just completed my master's in statistics. Well, I, at that stage, I didn't know anything about medical research uh, or the opportunities that were there. In fact, I had an offer of a job in the civil service, which I'd taken up. But when they told me about the possibility of working medical research, and indeed they suggested I should go and meet Richard Doll up in London uh, at, at the statistics research unit, I thought that sounded a good idea. So I went to meet him and I didn't take much convincing. In fact, this sounded much more interesting than working uh, for the civil service. So in fact, I applied for a job in his unit. Uh, Didn't get that one, but very shortly afterwards, a job came up in Wallace Fox's unit, the tuberculosis and chest diseases unit, as it was called in those days. And I was fortunate to get that job. And really, that was the beginning of my uh, working with TB and was very grateful for the, for having been introduced to it in that particular way. Thanks, Andrew. And and to Sarah, how about yourself? My career has been completely based on luck and happenstance. In 1988, I had just completed uh, my medical training and training in general practice and realized at that point that actually I wanted to get some research experience in addition. And completely by luck, uh, I heard about this job that had just come up coordinating a TB survey. 
And the reason it, the job was available was that the person who was supposed to do it uh, had dropped out at the last moment and they had funding and needed to get going. So that's how it happened. It was, it was, just, it was just luck. Um, and then realized, having started, that I was very interested both in TB, but more generally in epidemiology and did an MSc in epidemiology and retrained in public health medicine. Great, thanks, Eric. So we'll come to some of those um, points later on. But before we get to that, I just wanted you just to share how you actually started working together. Well, we had met in uh, 1988 because Andrew was the statistician on the survey that I was coordinating. But then he went off to work on HIV and moved to Uganda. Uh, So we didn't work together for very long at that time. Uh, But in 2000, when I rejoined the unit, uh, when Janet Derbyshire had been asked by the MRC to uh, put together a clinical trials unit, and Andrew was actually asked by Janet to lead a group called that we call the Division Without Portfolio, to develop clinical trials in areas where there was a lack of infrastructure, a lack of tradition of clinical trials. And I joined the unit in 2000 to work with Andrew. So that's when we started working together closely. I just wanted to turn back to Andrew. Uh, So you you started in the late 60s uh, in the TB unit with Wallace Fox. And this was a seminal time for uh, tuberculosis and tuberculosis trials. Uh, lots of very influential studies being uh, conducted, defining ultimately uh, short course rifampicin-based therapy for TB. I wonder if you could just give us some reflections on that, and particularly why you think that those trials were um, so successful and what might have contributed to that. Well, part of this success was due to the fact that the MRC had been working in East Africa for quite a number of years already. Um, They had been doing studies amongst a number of different sites, sometimes 30 to 40 sites across the three countries which made up East Africa at that point in time, which in fact was Uganda, Tanzania and Kenya. Subsequently, it was joined by Zambia. And the other thing that was an important feature of it was the the link with Professor Denny Mitchison, who was actually running the TB laboratory service of the MRC. And he had a senior technician based in each of these countries. And that was an important aspect of it as well. So the quality of bacteriology was good because there was a good lab in, in Kampala, Dar es Salaam and Nairobi. That's right. There was a good infrastructure before we started the first of the short course studies, which actually began in 1970. So things had been running there for some time. It had been well set up. What else was part of the success of it? I think it has to be said it was actually the leadership of Wallace Fox, who in fact was quite an inspirational leader, I think, and and encouraged people to to really give of their very best. In fact, he he didn't didn't accept second best at all and required actually that everybody pulled their weight. And you, of course, were a statistician on these trials. I wonder if you can just give us a flavour of of the analysis and how you conducted it back then compared to the sort of approaches, uh, you know, that we take now. Well, in some ways, it was very different um, insofar as the data was not being processed on computer. The data, of course, in those days, all got sent to London by mail. So it was it was quite a, a big exercise. But in fact, it was a 
it was a setup that worked well. Um, and we were talking about studies with um, something over a thousand patients in each study. And we had what we called an analysis card. It was a card of about six inches by four inches, which in fact was designed to collect all the data from a particular study. In fact, one of the beauty of that card was you could actually look at the card and see at a glance exactly what had happened to the patient. And the way we analyzed the data was in fact, we sorted them according to treatment uh, regimen, the allocated treatment into groups and, and just went through and put them into different piles and counted them and did our analysis in that way. What I should say was also different in those days. We were, you know, there was we, there was less concern about the fact of actually doing um, interim analyses as you went along on a, on a very regular basis. And so we had a pretty good idea of what the results were showing. Um, we kept them to ourselves. That was Janet Derbyshire and myself who were usually doing these analyses. Um, and it was fascinating to see the way that the, the results evolved over time. Fascinating. Um, the TV units ultimately closed in 1986. And maybe just turn to you, Sarah, you, you joined the units soon after that. But I, I was wondering whether you thought uh, that the decision to close the units was uh, a good idea or, or in fact, why that decision um, occurred and then what became of TV research um, sort of after that in terms of the, the MRC. Well, in retrospect, it clearly was the wrong decision for where we moved to over the next 10, 20 years. But at that time, uh, back in 86, so it was, it was pre any real impact of HIV on uh, TB. Uh, the unit had been extremely successful as, uh, uh, as Andrew has described. The MRC felt that Actually, they had done a good job, and it was time to to move on to other areas. Not you know, they didn't completely stop all TB work, but they stopped having a, a unit. And it was, at, of course, at the time that Wallace Fox uh, was retired, had retired, and Denny Mitchison had retired. So these these two big beasts were not working in the field much. Uh, and it it made sense, actually. In retrospect, of course, then HIV took off with a huge impact on uh, TB, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and then more widely. And, and also people became complacent about uh, treatment and there were a lot of people who didn't complete their treatment properly. And so we ended up in the mess we were by 2000. Um, I wanted to move on to, to drug-resistant uh, TB, and you've alluded to that was the real challenge uh, coming into the 2000s with treatments lasting you know, up to two years, um, very challenging. And uh, STREAM-1 uh, was, was the first study uh, in, in drug-resistant TB. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how uh, this came about. It was quite interesting going right back to the origin of this, and the origin of this really is that USAID was requesting researchers to put in um, for a clinical trial to assess uh, an appropriate uh, treatment for the patients with multidrug resistant TB or, or specifically rifampicin resistant TB. And a number of research groups put in a bid to do this. And rather surprisingly, the International Union actually was successful. Now, the study that they had in mind actually was going to cost too much money. So they 
decided that the right alternative would be to look at a series of cohort studies. Now, this was really following work that had been done by the microbiologist Armand van Dunn, who had actually looked at the a, a shortened treatment for uh, multidrug resistant disease in Bangladesh and had got really some quite encouraging looking some very successful results. So the union decided, well, maybe the right way to, to go about this was to look at four other parts of the world to see whether, in fact, this result could be repeated, not least in patients with HIV, because there were very few, if any, patients who ha actually had a co-infection with HIV in Bangladesh. And so um, I.D. Rusin uh, from the union came to see me and asked, in fact, if I would design a, a cohort study to, to, to answer that particular question. And I agreed to do that, and but was never entirely happy with the idea of the cohort study and felt that it's so much better to do a clinical trial if possible. Perhaps it's a non-inferiority trial addressing the question as to whether the regimen studied in Bangladesh was as good, at least as good, as the one which WHO was recommending. So we were looking at basically a regimen of about nine months, which is a shortened treatment compared to the 20 or more months, which was actually currently being recommended by WHO, I think it's really important to mention at this point in time that that regimen was recommended not on the base of any clinical trial, but it's really based on uh, a number of cohort studies and also expert opinion. So that's how we got to stream stage one. Uh, and Sarah and myself, we were actually co-chief investigators on that trial. And I mean, just out of interest, uh, at the time when that was being designed was the non-inferiority design something that was widely accepted at the time or was there a lot of challenge interesting if you look at the history of non-inferiority trials you'll find that very very few were conducted in before the year 2000 there's been a sort of exponential growth really in non-inferiority trials and not least in the area of tb and in fact hardly any trials are done in in other uh superiority trials for, for the most part it, partly because when you get to the level, certainly in drug sensitive disease, where you get a good result, you're getting good results routinely from the standard regimen, it's actually quite difficult to show better results. And what you're looking for is something perhaps which is either safer or shorter or has something else to commend it, not just the fact that the results may be better um, in themselves. Can I just add, non-inferiority at that time had a very bad name in drug development because people were complaining about, you know, that they were never as precise and, and actually it was ending up with inferior treatments or, or, you know, not particularly good treatments on the basis of non-inferiority when there wasn't any real advantage. And I think that the the, the importance uh, I think Andrew has, in particular, has been uh, promoting, and and as he said, is that that if you're doing a non-inferiority trial, there has to be a benefit in what you're investigating. I mean, potentially, whether it's safer or easier or shorter or, or whatever, but 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 it is it shouldn't just be you know more or less the same as. So I just before I hand over to, to Connor, I just wanted uh, your reflections on the whole stream experience. This was something that you were involved with for, for 10 years of your life or, or more possibly. And what, what are your fondest memories of, of the stream trials and, uh, and the work that you did together on that? Well, the exciting thing for me was 
uh, we were working in drug-resistant TB, and there hadn't been any phase three trials, and there wasn't much in the way of experienced sites. And it was it was fascinating, and we ended up having sites in South Africa, where, of course, that there was a tradition of clinical trials, but then in several other countries where there wasn't, so Ethiopia, Vietnam, and Mongolia. And it was, it was a wonderful experience working with these people. Of course, it was really lovely to work with people in across the world on this and also to have a very good team of people in London. I wouldn't I want to forget about that. Too. The other thing, one of the things that really struck me also, perhaps unexpectedly, how good the retention and adherence to treatment was. I mean, we tend to think of patients who've got multidrug resistant disease as difficult patients, in the, some of them at least, in the first place. And that's why they've got drug resistance, simply because they're not very good at taking their treatment and they, they don't turn up for appointments and so on. But the retention rates were remarkably good, meaning that we, in fact, at the end of the day, the results that we got, we felt pretty confident in them. Now, it was a, it was a good experience. And it was good, of course, to be able to see in these some of these sites people developing their skills so that they could become researchers in their own right. So the two of you worked uh, for some time together. And of course, Sarah, you're a clinician and Andrew, a statistician. Uh, tell us a bit about how that came about and, and, and what you think the value of, of yeah. the two disciplines working so closely together is. I think it was very much Janet's belief that it's so important in clinical trials to have both the statistical design elements, which are absolutely crucial, uh, but then to have some medical involvement that is able to have a sort of foot in both camps and and help both the, the site investigators and the trialists work together effectively. And I think that's a there's a model that and the unit didn't develop, but we've certainly used a lot and I think it's very successful. I think one of the best decisions I made over the years in fact was to to invite you to become co-chief investigator for or stream. I was asked about if I would be invest chief investigator, which I had never been chief investigator of a of a trial because they're nearly always clinicians who are. Uh, and I was very privileged to be asked that, but thought really I really do need uh, clinical input here, and that's what led me to ask you to be co chief investigator for that. And I that I'm really really grateful I did. I don't think it would have been successful if in the same way if I hadn't. Fantastic. I'm, I'm just going to hand over to Connor to kind of continue with some questions. Great. Thanks both. So we've talked a bit about the past, but I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts now on, on the future. We're currently in this very exciting place where for the first time in a long time, we have a TB drug development pipeline full of, of new and exciting drugs. And we're also in an era where a lot of very innovative and novel trial designs are, are constantly being put forwards and actually being brought into use. And Andrew, I'd like to start just by asking you, you could look at this period and, and get the feeling that there is some, some similarity to the heyday in the 1970s and 80s. What do you think are some of the parallels or some of the main differences with, with the activity of the BMRC at that time and, and where we are now? That's a very interesting question. I think, I mean, fundamental to a, a success of a trial, in fact, of course, is 
all those who are involved, not least those who are working in the sites. And I think that will always be critical. Whatever we do in terms of our designs, having good doctors and other research workers in the field is actually really very, very important. Obviously, there are issues about design, as you rightly pointed out. But in terms of actually what happens, fundamentally, yes, it's really there are things which are very much the same. You've got to have good quality committed staff. But the way the data is being collected and processed now is really, it's much more efficient and, and timely, which does make uh, for quite a difference. A very good point about, you know, the the, the times may change, but the, the fundamentals of a successful clinical trial remain the same. And I think, Sarah, I'd be, I'd be interested to hear what, what your thoughts are, thinking about us, what the era we're moving into now, or maybe have already entered to a, to a degree. Do you think there are any lessons from the past that we need to bear in mind as we move forward? And I guess for both of you, I would actually ask as well, do you think there are any any missed opportunities we had in the past that, again, could inform the way in which we're moving forward? I think um, and what's very exciting at the moment, as you said, uh, Connor, uh, the number of new products, the new designs that uh, allow perhaps more rapid evaluation. So we are seeing many more treatments come to light quite quickly and perhaps on not such long-term sound data in large, long clinical trials. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think the, that the important lesson is that, of course, in a clinical trial, you never, ever get all of the, the safety and the, the practical implications of a treatment. And even less so, I think, if you're, if you're moving quite fast. And so I think the important thing is to make sure that we have proper surveillance as new treatments are, are introduced on the basis of, of, of perhaps more rapid clinical trials. I, I agree entirely with what Sarah, Sarah has said. I think one of the things that is different today is because there are now more drugs available. In those days, we had limited options, although we were looking at different combinations of drugs. And now we have trials where, in fact, we can have an adaptive design and whereby we can reject uh, and, and drop early a regimen that's not looking promising. Um, you talked about whether we had missed opportunities in the past. Incidentally, I, I think if I look back at Stream, I sort of feel in some ways that maybe we shouldn't have done the way we did in terms of actually just taking exactly the regimen which had been stood in, studied in Bangladesh. And maybe in that first study, it would have been better if we had modified the regimen in some other way to see whether, in fact, we could have moved things further uh, forward a bit more quickly. Um, but that's a point we can make with with hindsight. As we as we move forward, I mean, we are still learning in terms of the best way to actually assess drugs. And indeed, the whole question about the fact that not everybody needs the same duration is a, is a really important issue. Um, and that is something looking at the at varying durations, according perhaps to the extent to which patient, of their patient's disease is really quite an important feature of how we're moving at the present time. You've mentioned... Um... Two things there, Andrew, that I picked up on. One was our um, increasing ability 
to identify regimens that are not going to be successful and and drop them from a trial at an at an earlier stage and also this this idea of the almost personalized medicine approach or personalized duration approach do you think our kind of silver bullet or magic bullet is going to be to focus on these two areas we're talking a magic bullet so i would sort of feel a magic bullet if it was possible would be a biomarker which really could tell us when you could stop treatment for a patient. Now, that may be something which is possible. It may be something which is not on the horizon at all at the moment. But if there was, in fact, a, a test, a biomarker, which could say, this patient is doing well now, and this biomarker mean, is telling you, in fact, that you could stop treatment. And such a biomarker mightn't be the same biomarker, but but would could also be used in clinical trials to decide when a treatment was worth pursuing or not. But whether whether it's feasible, who knows? <laughs> the quote is uh every everything's impossible until it's done. <laughs> yes. So we're kind of drawing to the end of our our time. Um and I actually just had two more short questions. I suppose the, the first one is if you could rub a lamp or be granted just one wish, what do you think would be the one thing that you would wish for or wish to see in TB therapeutics research in the next 20 years? Well, I would say the biomarker. I mean, no question. Yes, I would agree with that. And I would say, I suppose, uh, the, the reality is, of course, that all our new drugs, and of course, it's true of drugs generally, isn't it? In fact, you don't find drugs that don't have adverse events. And it would be really good to have a, a new drug, which is highly effective, but also was actually had a low level of adverse events. Yeah, certainly. I could. I actually, uh, I couldn't agree more with that. And the the last question is is more of a more of a personal question. Um, what are you most looking forward to in retirement, and what what's retirement going to look like for both of you? Oh gosh. Well, at the moment, retirement looks like um, uh, unpacking for the next two years. I'm back in Canada, where my family are, and. I'm very much looking forward to being more involved in in their lives and and reestablishing my my Canadian roots. Uh, I'm uh, yeah, it's 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 fun, but it's wintry. Conrad, <laughs> uh, it's a bit early days to answer that question in some ways, but I suppose there are three things that come to mind. Is um, one is spending a bit more time with the family, um, grandchildren, and great grandchildren. Um, Secondly, more time on my bicycle. I hope to be traveling around more on my bike, getting to some interesting places. But thirdly, I really am keen to keep in touch with the TB world. And in fact, uh, maybe there's opportunities for, for looking back historically over some of the things and, and perhaps doing a bit of writing or whatever. I'm really grateful, to, um, as I'm sure Sarah is too, to be able to have an ongoing link with UCL, which means that we can sort of see just what is happening and follow what future developments are, particularly in the field of TB. Great. Well, um, I'd just like to wind up by saying thanks to you both for, for taking the time to, to do this, this interview. Um, I think it goes without saying that, you know, both of you are very inspirational figures and I can say that on a on a personal level as well. And yeah, we would love to see to keep on seeing more of you at, at UCL. And you know, you will be missed. Yeah, I, I, I echo that, uh, Connor. And it's been it's been great to 
hear both the um, history of, of how you started in, in trials and actually your, your views on, on the future and just with that uh, great experience in, in the field. And that is the end of the episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear more about the stream trials, we did an episode with Andrew last year all about the stream two results. And if that's not enough, there are another couple of older episodes about Andrew's career from a few years ago. These episodes are all linked in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at MRCCTU and on LinkedIn at MRC Clinical Trials Unit at UCL for all the latest updates.